This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'd like to start off by wishing everyone listening to this program on Thanksgiving a happy holiday. When we started out 15 years ago, we were a Thursday program. We're still a Thursday program, which means every year we're on on Thanksgiving. We hope that those of you destined to get together with family members on this day can somehow avoid those nasty political discussions, which seem to be plaguing, well, they normally plague holidays and perhaps are more of a plague of late. Our suggestion is that if you encounter people who are happy with Donald J. Trump in the Oval Office, just let it go. Let it go today, anyway. What you can do is suggest that they go out the next day and get involved in the big fight that takes place every year on Black Friday. Here on this program, as, as you who listen know, we tend to trend toward recurring themes, things that we find interesting, things that we feel we should explore, talk about, and just kick around. One such theme, which is very happy, we should probably start out with this because it is good news, is the fact that over in that beautiful country in Africa known as Zimbabwe, the jackass that has been mismanaging it for decades since it became an independent nation, Robert Mugabe, was finally this week forced to step down. Over the past 15 years, we found ourselves gravitating to the story of Robert Mugabe because, well, as Mugabe was stealing elections in Zimbabwe, the Republicans were stealing elections here in America. There was a certain symmetry there. We do have to note that just because they got rid of the figurehead that was wrecking the country doesn't mean that Zimbabwe is out of the woods. No, <laughs> it's, it's got a long way to go before it's going to see some daylight in getting out of the woods that it's been stuck in for a while. But... This is a good first step. In fact, in this, I think we should quote a bit from The Economist, because as I say, this is a good news story and worth airing. Said that fine British publication under the headline of The Man Who Wrecked a Country, the magazine noted it was the dismissal and flight abroad of Robert Mugabe's oldest and trustiest lieutenant that finally led to his downfall. Grace Mugabe, the 93-year-old president's avaricious wife, was thought to be behind the sacking. Younger than her husband by 41 years, she plainly sought to inherit the throne. Yet, she overplayed her hand. Within a week, the armed forces commander, alongside an array of generals, declared without naming her that Mrs. Mugabe must be stopped. He demanded also, without naming names, that her nemesis, Emerson Mnangwangwa, must be reinstated as heir apparent. Mrs. Mugabe's allies were denounced as counter-revolutionaries, who played no part in the War of Liberation, that 37 years ago had brought Mr. Mugabe to power. The truth is, as reported in this program many years ago, Mugabe wanted to step down a while ago. He was really old and tired and, you know, I think was probably fed up with destroying his own nation and was evidently looking to, you know, go out to pasture somewhere in a foreign land where he spends a lot of his time, like, getting medical care and things. But the cronies around him insisted he not do so. These same cronies are the head of the... ZANU-PF political party, 
are, not coincidentally, the people that are now in charge without Mugabe. We hope very much that things can get better in that country, which I visited in 1988 and was very impressed by the friendliness of the Zimbabwean people. They are possibly the friendliest people I've ever met anywhere. And it so happens, a very good friend of mine is from Zimbabwe, and he too is one of the nicest people I know. We hope that he and all people from his nation can see things go forward in a timely fashion toward a brighter future. And by the way, located in Zimbabwe and the border between it and Zambia lies Victoria Falls, which is, without a doubt, one of the spectacular natural wonders of the world. I would suggest, dear listener, that if you have any thought to travel there and see it, do so. Put it on your bucket list. It's worth it. And we'll probably have more to say about Mugabe and Zimbabwe in the future, but uh, that's enough for now. We also want to do a little bit of follow-up on our discussion last week about the Yimby movement in the Bay Area, wherein spoiled 30-somethings are using the funding provided them by tech companies and developers to promote wholesale construction of housing in the overcrowded Bay Area, which already has massive traffic jams everywhere you look. Now, we believe in giving people a chance to, uh, to come on this program and, and voice counter-opinions to what we have to say. And so today, joining us now to sound an editorial contrary to ours is Mr. Richard Leach, who offers the following counter-opinion. We also need to do a bit of follow-up on our contention about how Silicon Valley is hooking us. The Week picked up on this, and in their last word section, which closes the magazine, they devoted two pages to the article which appeared in The Guardian last week. We will excerpt from that shortly. But I would like to note that yesterday marked a very somber anniversary in America. That would be on the 22nd. The assassination of our 35th president, John F. Kennedy, yours truly, did travel down to Texas for two events in relation to this tragic milestone in American history. I should say a word or two about that. And forward promote the fact that Jefferson Morley, whom I spoke to in Dallas, has agreed to come on this program next month to talk about his excellent new book titled The Ghost. The Ghost, in this case, refers to James Jesus Angleton, the man who, within the CIA, built his own CIA, I guess you might say, based upon counterintelligence. Angleton's story intersects that of the JFK assassination in a rather sinister way. We don't have time to even talk much about that today, but we spoke with Jefferson Morley about another biography he had written in the past, that of Wynne Scott. That narrative intersects that of James Angleton, and that of Lee Harvey Oswald. In our second segment today, we will re-air that interview. While flying to Texas, I, I took Anthony Summers' excellent book, titled Not in Your Lifetime. Some have called it the defining book on the JFK assassination, and it's certainly a candidate. Summers has written a lot of very good books and on the topic of deep political matters. 
I bought the copy I have after bumping into him at a conference. <laughs> I was amused to open it up and see that he had signed for Doug, well met in the elevator, best, Anthony Summers. Mr. Summers, during that meeting, agreed to come on this program, but uh, owing to uh, my own shortcomings, I didn't make that happen. It's still a possibility. He'd be a great guest, and I hope that uh, in the months to come, we will bring him to you. I complimented him upon his excellent book upon Richard Nixon, which I think made him rather happy But because he said, well, you know, I, I really I really like that book that I did, and a lot of people don't, don't pay, pay it much attention. So if we can get Tony Summers in this program, we will talk not just about JFK, but also a bit about the 37th president, Richard Milhouse Nixon. And yes, their paths intertwine as well, as you may or may not be aware. I did make one mistake uh, in... in grabbing some books to read while having so many hours in the air. I took another of Summers' book with me, um, The 11th Day, which is all the head with the subheadline, The Full Story of 9-11. It's a gripping read to be sure, but you know, when you're on an aircraft flying across the country, it's, it's maybe not a good choice. Yeah, you probably don't want to take a live with you either, unless you want to, you know, you probably don't want to take a live with you either and ponder what happened to the Uruguayan soccer team. I should note that in Texas, uh, there were two events I attended, a mock trial held in Houston at the South Texas College of Law, wherein the alleged assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was put through a mock trial. No, no, not in the sense that somebody played Oswald, etc. The whole thing was very artificial, and, um, well, to make a long story short, when the jury did vote on it, six voted to convict Mr. Oswald, five voted to acquit, and one person couldn't seem to make up their mind. Curiously, from our standpoint, three on the defense team were people that have appeared on this radio program. Robert Tannenbaum acted as the lead defense attorney. Dr. Eric, Dr. Gary Aguilar appeared as a medical expert, as did the legendary Dr. Cyril Wecht. A trial, based upon the adversarial system of each side trying to discredit the other, is not a good way to get at the truth. And I was somewhat dismayed to see how of some of my, and as you might imagine, I would be considered on the side of the defense. Oh, and by the way, the defense more or less had two separate issues, whether Oswald was guilty and whether there was a conspiracy. This correspondent is quite certain that there was some form of conspiracy in the event. His guilt, I'd have to say he was part of something and knew something was going on, but even as Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry noted back in 1964, there was nobody in Texas or any place else that could put Oswald up on that sixth floor with a rifle in his hand. There is now a museum on the sixth and seventh floor of the Texas School the Book, Book Depository, one of the world's most photographed buildings. And uh, I was hoping to, to get a look at the stairwell that Oswald supposedly went down after doing his shooting. Unfortunately, it's now all blocked off. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but one of the key factors in, in trying to defend Mr. Oswald as the guilty party is the fact that it is known that a police officer on the second floor of that building, after drawing his gun and storming inside, accosted a man in the lunchroom, known to be Lee Harvey Oswald. There's absolutely no doubt about this. But attorney Bill Simpich, also, who's also been in this program, actually, so I guess there's yet another person, part of this event that's tied to this show, noted me that he was unable to find uh, the document 
wherein the officer, Marion Baker, wrote up his original report of encountering Oswald, wherein he described the fact that the suspect had a Coca-Cola in his hand. When they went to type that one up, the Coke disappeared. Although, curiously, other witnesses described Oswald after the assassination as having a Coke in his hand. Now, we have to admit that, although we don't know much about it, we would suppose that assassinating a president could be thirsty work. But one has to ponder how it is an an assassin would take the time to buy a soft drink after the shooting. Well, we'll have more to say about that in the future. But I did note that we know, based on some recreations of Baker's actions, that the time it took to get off the motorcycle after the shooting to having a gun in Oswald's belly was somewhere between 75 and 90 seconds. This is on the second floor of the building. The shooting took place from the sixth floor. I timed the amount of time it took to go kitty corner from the southeast corner to where the elevator was at the northwest corner. It took me 30 seconds. That's just to get to the top of the stairwell. I went down one set of stairs. It took me 11 seconds. Multiply that by four and you're at 74 seconds. And that did not give me time to cross the lunchroom and purchase a Coca-Cola. So let us just note that that is a curious aspect of the case. Oh, well, in addition to the fact that we know that two employees went down the stairwell and did not see Oswald hurrying past them. It's my understanding that one of those two witnesses, realizing that her testimony, casting doubt as it does on the official story, might make her health and welfare at risk. She wound up disappearing for many years after the assassination, although apparently dedicated researchers did finally track her down and wrote a book about it. Haven't read it. Can't say whether it's good or bad. But um, I don't know. I'm going to talk about something else. I do want to note with some sadness that the photo that I took with Mary Mormon, whose iconic photograph of the assassination is known to you, it is one of the two or three most disseminated images of that event. But somehow the guy that snapped the picture on my phone didn't get the job done. Oh well. I cannot resist reporting that Ms. Mormon, who, who must be nearing 80 at this point, very sweet, and got quite a laugh over the statement to her by Kennedy researcher Pat Spear that, Mary, have you seen how many of the people here at this conference are a bunch of older guys? Well, I just want you to know that they still think you're hot. Mary got a kick out of that, and so did her granddaughters who were there with her. Anyway, these are probably not ideal topics to go over on on a holiday program. So what I think I'll do for the remainder of this segment is just pick up a copy of the week and do our usual... We would note that uh, scientists are now convinced that that object which blew through the solar system a week ago really and truly did come from interstellar space. They decided that it was an asteroid and not a comet because uh, photographs of it did not show any sort of halo around it, which you would expect from a comet. And as further studies come forward, we'll report on them because this is a pretty curious thing to have happened. It's been speculated that uh, it must be happening all the time. But this is the first time that uh, scientists have been able to establish from 
its trajectory that it surely did come from outside of the solar system. And we hope, dear listener, that you are not someone we're going to describe in the following story, which is the fact that the American Psychological Association conducted a survey titled Stress in America. And it's painting a grim picture of the nation's collective mental health. Nearly 60% of the 3,440 people polled say they consider the present day to be, quote, the lowest point in our nation's history that they can remember, unquote. And yes, this appears to have something to do with the Trump presidency. It's noted that pessimism is highest among Democrats and millennials, but also affects most Republicans and older adults who lived through World War II and Vietnam. Evidently, many of those surveyed admitted they are losing sleep and experiencing headaches and other physical signs of stress. And Arthur Evans, CEO of the American Psychological Association, notes that when stress becomes chronic, it can have real health consequences. Our suggestion is that if you have a choice between stressing out over Trump and having another drink, well, have another drink. You might also consider taking in a bit of kava, which is a safe, relaxing, natural pharmaceutical. Or better yet, go out and get some exercise. Work this thing off. And as we like to do in every program, let's do just a little bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week this past week for conflicts of interest with the news that a controversial nominee for a lifetime federal judgeship did not disclose to lawmakers that he is in fact married to a senior White House lawyer. The New York Times reported last week that Brett Talley, who has been nominated by President Trump to become a federal district judge in Alabama, is in fact married to Ann Donaldson, the chief of staff to White House counsel Donald McGahn. When he was asked by the Senate to list potential conflicts of interest in the questionnaire, Talley did not mention his wife or her position. Talley, who has, been, has practiced law for only three years and has never, in fact, tried a case. Oh, he also received a unanimous not qualified rating from the American Bar Association, which it should be noted has only happened to two other federal judicial nominees since 1989. On the other hand, the Senate Judiciary Committee advanced Talley's nomination along a party-line vote this week, and the full Senate might confirm him as early as next week. No wonder people are stressed. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for Holy Smokes after Pope Francis banned the sale of cigarettes at all shops in the Vatican. Spokesman Greg Burke said the stores can sell cigars because the smoke is not inhaled. And, you know, the truth of the matter is... Cigarettes are a very strange form of tobacco. Because of how the leaf is cured, cigarette smoke passes right through your lung membranes into your bloodstream, hits your brain in seven seconds, which makes it much more addicting than cigars or pipes. It is very much the equivalent of crack cocaine. But the tobacco companies have succeeded in fuzzying this fact so that it's not generally understood. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for goat yoga. Apparently, the Washington, D.C. Department of Health is taking a stand against goat yoga. These are yoga classes in which participants mingle with live goats. 
which the week says have become strangely popular nationwide. District officials shut down an upcoming goat yoga class on the grounds that while exotic animals are allowed for special events and educational purposes, they cannot mix with or touch humans. You know, and if you know something about goat yoga, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We, we need to get educated. And by the way, there is a report in the news that a flat earther is hoping to enter the space race with a rocket that will go up 1,800 feet, from which he expects to show that the Earth really is flat. 1,800 feet, of course, would place it 700 feet below the summit of Mission Peak in the East Bay. But we got quite a laugh out of KDVS's Scott Soriano posting on Facebook that this guy might be Trump's new choice to head NASA. All right, in the five minutes we have left, I think we're going to quote from that Guardian piece titled, How Silicon Valley Hooks Us. I think we talked a bit about this before, but doggone it, let's talk about it again. piece starts out by noting Justin Rosenstein had tweaked his laptop's operating field to block Reddit. He banned himself from Snapchat, which he compares to heroin, and he imposes limits on his use of Facebook. But that wasn't enough. Last August, the 34-year-old tech executive took the more radical steps to restrict his own use of social media and other addictive technologies. Rosenstein purchased a new iPhone and instructed his assistant to set up a parental control feature that prevents him from downloading apps. He was particularly aware of the allure of Facebook likes, which he describes as bright dings of pseudo-pleasure that can be as hollow as they are seductive. And Rosenstein should know a thing about it. He was the Facebook engineer who created the like button in the first place. Rosenstein belongs to a small but growing band of Silicon Valley heretics who complain about the rise of a so-called attention economy, an internet shaped around the demands of advertising. These refuseniks are rarely founders or chief executives who have little incentive to deviate from the mantra that their companies are making the world a better place. Instead, they tend to work a rung or two down the corporate ladder. Designers, engineers, and product managers who, like Rosenstein several years ago, put in place the building blocks of a digital world from which they are now trying to disentangle themselves. The piece notes that research shows that we touch, swipe, or tap our phones on the average 2,600 times a day. There is, of course, growing concern that as well as addicting people, this technology is contributing the so-called continuous partial attention, severely limiting people's ability to focus and possibly lowering IQ. One recent study showed that the mere presence of smartphones damages cognitive capacity even when the device is turned off. Said Rosenstein, everyone is distracted all of the time. Peace in the Guardian notes that these concerns are trivial compared to the devastating impact upon the political system that some of Rosenstein's peers believe can be attributed to the rise of social media and the attention-based market that drives it. Drawing a straight line between addiction to social media and political earthquakes like Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump, they contend that digital forces have upended the political system and left unchecked could even render democracy as we know it obsolete. The article goes on to note, that designers, programmers, and entrepreneurs in the Bay Area recently paid $1,700 at a symposium to learn how to manipulate people into habitual use of their products. This is a course taught by Nir Ayal, who is the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Mr. Ayal has spent years consulting with the tech industry, teaching techniques he developed by closely studying how the Silicon Valley giants operate. 
Ayal has written that the technologies we use have turned into compulsions. It's the impulse to check a message notification. It's the pull to visit YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter just for a few minutes, only to find yourself still tapping and scrolling an hour later. None of this is an accident, he writes. It's all just as their designers intended. We recommend, dear listener, that you look up this article and read it in its entirety. The excerpt in the week isn't bad either, but really, we recommend very seriously you check this out. Later in the article, it notes that tech companies can exploit such vulnerabilities as how algorithms are tailored to each of us to keep people hooked. Manipulating, for example, when people receive likes for their posts, ensuring that they arrive when an individual is likely to feel vulnerable or in need of approval or maybe just bored. And the very same techniques can be sold to the highest bidder. There's no ethics, says Stanford University graduate Tristan Harris, who is a 33-year-old former Google employee turned vocal critic of the tech industry. All of us are jacked into this system, he says. All of our minds can be hijacked. Our choices are not as free as we think they are. Harris explains that one of the most seductive aspects of this is the design of the news feed where people scroll down to see what might be there. It's the same psychological susceptibility that makes gambling so compulsive. Variable rewards. When we tap those apps with red icons, we don't know whether we'll discover an interesting email, an avalanche of likes, or nothing. Said Harris, every time you're swiping down, it's like a slot machine. You don't know what's coming next. The article closes by noting that in the wake of Donald Trump's stunning electoral victory, many were quick to question the role of so-called fake news on Facebook. Russian-created Twitter bots or the data-centric targeting efforts that companies such as Cambridge Analytics used to sway voters. But James Williams, who built the metric systems for Google's global search advertising business and is now doing a Ph.D. at Oxford in persuasive design, great, sees those factors as symptoms of a deeper problem. In a blog published a month before the U.S. election, Williams sounded the alarm for an issue he argued was far more consequential question than whether Trump reached the White House. The reality TV star's campaign, he said, had heralded a watershed in which the new, digitally supercharged dynamics of attention economy have finally crossed a threshold and become manifest in the political system. Williams saw a similar dynamic unfold months earlier during the Brexit campaign, when the attention economy appeared to him biased in favor of the emotional, identity-based case for the UK leaving the European Union. He does stress that these dynamics are not unique to the political right. They also play a role in the popularity of left-wing politicians such as Bernie Sanders. Surveillance state fictionalized in George Orwell is likely misplaced. It was another English science fiction writer, Aldous Huxley, who provided the more prescient observation when he warned that Orwellian-style coercion was less of a threat to democracy than the subtle power of man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. Says Williams, the dynamics of the attention economy are structurally set up to undermine the human will. And closes by noting that if Facebook, Google, and Twitter are chipping away at our ability to control our own minds, could there come a point at which democracy no longer functions? Will we be able to recognize it if and when it happens, says Williams? And if we can't, then how do we know it hasn't happened already? Yikes. Anyway, that's it for the segment. We suggest you resist the temptation to go check Twitter or Facebook right now. And instead, stay tuned and prepare to be educated about The Curious Figure of Winston Scott by author Jefferson Morley. You're listening to Radio Parallax.